John chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. Jesus' miracle of changing water into wine. Let's read the first five verses. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus proceeds to go ahead and change water into wine, the first of many signs that he performed. Let's pray real quickly. Lord, uh, we come before your throne this morning, and um, there's, there's so many things that are pressing in this life of ours, God, and yet the most important thing is to be at your feet and to worship and to hear from you. And so, Lord, your word is here before us and your spirit is among us. And we ask, Lord, that you would give your church, give your bride ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the church. Lord, I'm, I just confess quite, quite often I, I am always looking for what applies to my life and how this can make my life better and all this stuff. And sometimes it's just knowing about you and who you are and what you're like that changes my life and it's what I need. So I pray this morning. Um, I know there's many who are seeking specific answers to things. I pray by your spirit you'd speak to them, but most importantly, I pray that, they would, that we would have ears to hear beyond our needs into what you're actually saying. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. The Apostle John, later in his gospel, in chapter 20, verse 30, says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Uh, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The Bible is exclusive in that there is no other way to have eternal life except through Jesus Christ. He alone has life. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. He is it. It's exclusive. It is a very narrow path. And for those who say, well, that's narrow-minded, absolutely. It's exclusive. It goes through the cross, through the person of Jesus Christ. But let me say that invitation is open to the world that anyone who would believe upon his name, he opens with welcome and and a whole heart towards you. And so John's line of reasoning in writing this book, beginning in chapter one, is that he is making the case that Jesus is the Christ. It's very important because John says, if you don't believe that he's the Christ, if you don't believe who he says he is, you don't have his life. That is so important to know. You have to believe upon Jesus Christ, not just believing that he exists, but actually believing who he claims to be, what he actually has done on your behalf, that he is God in the flesh, that he actually died on your behalf. And the Holy Spirit illuminates that in our hearts in the faith we have is placed in Christ, trusting in him wholly to save us. And that is how we are born again, a total work of God's grace in our lives. 
And so John's line of reasoning is, is, is to lay out the case for us as we go through the book of John that we would know with certainty that Jesus is actually who he claimed to be. And that begins with eyewitnesses, personal interaction with Jesus Christ. They didn't have YouTube, they didn't have video cameras, they didn't have all that stuff. They had eyewitness accounts. How many of you know what happened in the, let's say, the Civil War? Very few photographs were taken. How do you know what happened? How do you know it's true? How do you know those people were real? Because it was recorded by people who were actually there and saw it and verified by other people and these things are historical documents and we place our faith in them believing that it is true. It's interesting as I, um, as being a pastor is one of the things that, that as I run into naysayers, uh, people who just don't believe the Bible and I've been on the other side of this, by the way, um, I think many of you have been as well, if not you aren't this morning, is that, um, you know, the Bible is untrustworthy. People, uh, you know, it was written and it's been rewritten, it's been edited and, and messed up. And let me ask you, how do you know that? Have you studied it? Have you read it? Have you sought it out? Have you looked at historical documents? Have you figured out how we actually get history? How we verify something's true? Is Homer's Iliad fake? Is it real? We have more historical documents and manuscripts and stuff that make up the New Testament, people writing and quoting the New Testament that make up, let's say, the New Testament or even the old scriptures, than we do Homer's Iliad. We have way more, 25,000 to 4,000 or something like that, I'm roughly estimating. What I'm saying is that these are historical accounts of real people. They talk about real geography, real people, real times, real seasons, real places, real culture. This is real. And if Jesus is truly who these people say he is, we've got to reckon in our hearts, what do we do with Jesus? If he truly did these miracles, if he truly rose from the dead, and it's not just some fictitious thing, then we have a reckoning in our heart because he is the son of God, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. We will stand before him, but he wants us to stand before him now. Now, so he can grant us mercy and forgiveness rather than at the judgment seat. He came to Jerusalem the first time on a donkey symbol of peace. He's coming back on a war horse. Now is the day. And John is saying it all funnels down to this. Your life, your world, the things that you're building, all this stuff, it's going to funnel down to you and Jesus Christ. Do you believe or do you not? And those are the sheep who believe and the ones who do not are the goats and Jesus has some things to say about those people in Matthew 25, which I encourage you to um, read. And so John's line of reasoning is to begin to tell us the people who would become his witnesses how they came to believe. And so he begins first by introducing us in the first few verses to the eternal word, who is the light and whom is life. He's the light of men. And that eternal word, God who existed from all eternity, became flesh, entered our time, our space, where we are, and, and dwelt among us. God, eternal spirit, 
became creation, became a man, and dwelt among us. That's what happened. And then we're introduced to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the one who was sent to prepare Israel for the coming Messiah, and, and John declares to them, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John testifies that not only is he the eternal God, he is the light, but he also says he's the Lamb. And we would know that that means that he was sacrificed for our sins. He would be sacrificed for our sins, the Lamb of God. And then as John has baptized Jesus, Jesus comes walking in and he says to his disciples, John had disciples, John the Baptist, he says, hey, behold the Lamb of God. And they started following him. And after a day, Andrew, what we think is also probably John, the writer of this gospel, they spend a day with Jesus and after that day, they're convinced in their heart that he is the Christ and the Messiah. Very fascinating there. And so Andrew then goes to his brother Peter. And we see that in verse 41, and he declares to his brother Peter, hey, we found the Messiah. I hung out with him from a day, uh, with a day, and this is what happened, this is who he was. It doesn't record what that conversation was, but he declares his testimony, because that's John's point. We found the Messiah, and then, as Peter is brought to Jesus by Andrew, guess what happens? Peter has an encounter with Jesus. And we read in a different gospel, in, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, we read where Peter declares to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus goes to Galilee and picks up Philip. Philip is there, and Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel, in verse 44, he says to him, hey, we found the one Moses was writing about in the law, and to whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. We found Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, Nazareth, yeah, right. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And then Philip does the best thing. He says, come and see. As he approaches, Jesus says to, to Nathaniel where he was, what he was doing, and what kind of person he was. He just reads his heart as Jesus does, which is amazing. And Nathaniel comes to face. And Nathaniel, in verse 49, says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You see the, the logic there of what's going on? Verse after verse, person after person, they're just declaring, man, you are the Messiah. They run into Jesus and they find out he is like no other. And any of you, by the grace of God, who have run into Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit, he is like none other. He changes your world. He turns you upside down. He reads you inside out. He exposes your sin and then cleanses you as you call out. And you are you're never the same. You have his life. It's beautiful. How good, how holy, how pure, how awesome, how radiant. And you just follow him all the days of your life. And, and you know that like, you're just like Peter of oh God. Depart from me, I'm a wretched man. You know, you have that aspect, and yet Jesus grabs you and pulls you closer to him as you walk this life. And, and then you realize when you've been walking with him year after year after year, actually the, the depths of what he saved you from. How actually truly sinful you've been. You know, I mean, the Lord is just so good. And so he is like none other. He is the Messiah and the King of Israel. And so John the Apostle recording for us how the disciples would become the main witnesses of Jesus' life and testimony. Um, those disciples would become the apostles. How they came to believe that Jesus is Son of God. And this is John's logic. That through their witness, we might believe their testimony that he is who he says he is. 
Now, we end chapter 1 with Jesus speaking to Nathanael in verses 50 and 51. And it says, Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You're going to see greater things than these. And he goes on. He says, and then he added, very truly, you will see heaven and open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, Nathanael, you haven't seen anything yet. You think because I know who you are and where you were that that's the end of what's coming? You are going to watch amazing things unfold. You're going to see God's intervention through me like you've never seen anything before. And that is what the ministry of being a disciple, walking with Jesus was. John says later in chapter 21, he says, listen, I can't contain all the things that Jesus did. He says, I suppose all the books in the world couldn't contain all the things that Jesus did. I'm just giving you a logical line of reasoning so you'll just get a a snapshot of, of who he was. I mean, it was so astounding. It's as if a God came and landed on earth and started working among us. <laughs> because he did. Hopefully that clicked in our Marvel world. I'm crying out loud. Things we believe and go, oh yeah. Me too. And so in chapter two, it switches from not only from the personal witness, but now to the miracles, the actual signs that Jesus would give that he is who he says he was. John lays out seven for him, seven in in his gospel, but we'll get there when we get there. But on the third day, there was a wedding, chapter two, at at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Cana was a very small town uh, in the northern region of Israel. It was around nine miles north of Nazareth. Now, if you don't know where Nazareth is, then we've got problems. So it's just, uh, it's in the northern part of the state, right? <laughs> and we know actually from John 21, uh, 2, that uh, Nathaniel, who's also called Bartholomew, um, he was from Cana. And so already someone who came to the Lord and believed in him was from Cana, and so Mary and Jesus were just down the road, nine miles away, so, you know, from here to the other side of Walla Walla uh, away, and so there was a tight-knit community, and, and weddings were happening. Probably there were, there, because it was all very small communities, people were related in some way, doing business with one another, and so Jesus, and uh, so Mary was invited along with Jesus and his disciples. Now, they were invited to a wedding. A, a Jewish wedding was a very major event, Uh, Like in all of our lives, a wedding is a major event. But similar to our culture, the wedding was preceded by an engagement. There was an engagement that lasted, could last up to to 12 months. It was called betrothal is what it was. But to become betrothed, basically the bridegroom had to give a bride a a dowry. He had to to give her like a lot of money. And uh, which is interesting at that point, it's, it's proving to her and her father that he could actually take care of her, that there was actually a commitment going on towards this woman. What in the world is wrong with marriage? Culture? So you have a guy who does not want to commit to a woman, and so they hang out, they shack up, they do everything that married people do, but he will not commit to her. He won't give his life to her. He won't give his whole heart to her and say, you're mine mine forever, I'll take care of you no matter what. That's little boy business. They want to 
play around, but they don't want to commit. They don't want to give themselves to someone else. That is love, by the way, ladies. Love is when a guy lays down his life for you, commits himself to you. Amen? Amen. And I've, I've heard it. I've heard, the, I've heard the excuses as a pastor. Oh, you know, we don't need to do a, mar- a wedding ceremony. We, we're committed to one another. Whatever. No, you're not. What's your word against mine? It's like, well, I'll take a legal document. I want a public confession. I want an absolute declaration that this is the woman. You know, I've had it in situations where people won't do it because of money reasons. You know, it's just cheaper for us not to get, do that. That's wrong. Suffer together. <laughs> it's marriage. Commit. Marriage is God's institution. And it's not between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It's between a man and a woman. That's Genesis 1. It is who the Creator says it is. Now, let's not saying that we don't mess it up. Of course we mess it up. But God's ideal is the best, that we would come together as husband and wife and be committed to each other for life. By the way, kids need a mom and a dad in a home. That's the way God designed it. Mom and dad and authority. And, and believe me, I know, I come from a divorced home, you know, the whole, the whole situation. I understand, life is difficult, things happen. But I'm talking about God's ideal. Commitment, young men, older men who've been married for a long time, commit, recommit, stay committed. He gave her a dowry. That's what happened. And then, when they got married, as I'll read in just a bit, they signed a contract to say, that's not stopping, that's continually going on forever. Very important, betrothal, engagement. It's important in the Jewish context, when you're engaged, you're legally married. You're legally married. You, you go ahead and, and you commit yourself to that person. you giving a dowry. You're making a down payment for, any, for, a, for a lifetime. That's what's going on. This is why when you get to the situation when you're reading about Joseph and Mary and she's found with child by the Holy Spirit, he wanted to put her away quietly, you had to give a certificate of divorce even when you were engaged. And the angel intervened and said, no, this isn't, this isn't infidelity. She's pure. This is a child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph backed off. He's like, yep, absolutely. Sorry about that. And so that whole in- period of engagement happened. Very important, by the way. Get premarital counseling. <coughs> Got to call you back. I'm sorry. <laughs> Speaking of, <laughs> they're trying to. <laughs> um, it's not even my notes, but that's just the way it works. <laughs> Telling you, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but to, but basically, according the wedding was a really important thing. According to many rabbinical writings, the wedding was very important because it was a symbol of God being united with Israel. Marriage was no easy deal. See, marriage has always been a symbol of God and His people. And actually, in the New Testament, we find out that marriage is a symbol of Christ and the church. That's what it's all about. Marriage is a picture, not a picture of what we want and what we get and how to make me get my, buy my own island and all this weird stuff that we get into. Sorry, I've been watching a little reality TV. 
<laughs> what are these people buying little islands? Like, don't you read? It's going to sink into the sea. Um, but your marriage is, it's, never mind, we'll go. To give you an idea of what a Jewish wedding was like, it's a symbol between God and, God and his people. It's very important. That's the design. That's the design behind it. The unity, the unbreaking unity between God and his people. Total submission on one hand, total laying down your life on the other, both for both mutual benefit. That's what marriage is supposed to be a picture of. Man uses his authority and his power not to rule over but to protect and to build up and provide for. Woman uses all the gifts that God's given her to come alongside and serve and to build up both submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ in their hearts, both with their, both individual gifted and in just a majestic way, both representing God, both male and female, created in the image of God, together. Beautiful picture when followed the way the Lord has it. But to give us a better idea of what the wedding is like, I want to read from um, Alfred Erderschmidt's book, uh, The Life and Times of the Messiah. He's just a historical um, historian here, and he kind of gets into, I'll just read ep- excerpts of what a Jewish wedding was like. It says, after the time of purification and fasting before the wedding, on the evening of the wedding, the bride was led from her parents' home to the home of her groom as music was played and wine and oil was given to everyone and various nuts were given to the children as treats, and so no EpiPens back then. Um, in this process, in this procession, the bride was veiled, surrounded by her companions and all the various people in their wedding parties. And it goes into to describe both types of wedding parties and their significance in that. But all around were festive arrays. Some carried torches or lamps on poles, and those nearest carried myrtle branches and flowers. And so it was just really festive and beautiful, usually done on a Wednesday. Everyone joined in the procession, breaking into praise of the beauty and the modesty of the new bride, which is kind of neat, and arrived, in, er, arrived at her new home. She was led to her new husband, and there would be a pronouncement by a rabbi out of the law, that she'd be, and then she'd be crowned with garlands, and then a formal legal document was signed, binding the groom to continually take care of her. And then the ceremonial washing of hands happened, and then the wedding supper began, and the celebration ensued. And some commentators said that lasted a full day. Some say it it could last up to a week, depending on what was available. But it was the major event in the life of a bride and a groom, let alone all these small communities. A lot of attention, time, and preparation went into a wedding. How many of you have been married and understand this? Yes. And so here everybody was. The procession had happened. They'd gone before the rabbi. He did the commitment. And now the party starts. And everybody was together. And there was a problem. The wine ran out. It's a small community, small people, meager means probably. The wine ran out. This was a major embarrassment. And Mary, who somehow seems to be involved in this somehow, maybe she was related. She just says, she's kind of in the logistics. She basically just says to Jesus, hey, in verse 3, they have no wine. In verse 4, Jesus said to, the, said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. And, you know, Mary knows Jesus can do something about it. And by Jesus' response, it's most likely that Mary is not just asking him to do something about it. She's asking him to do it in a way that reveal who she knows he is. Come on, I want everybody to know you're my boy, and you're not only my boy, you're the son of God. 
do something in a spectacular way. All you mothers know what I'm talking about. Now, the scriptures are silent on Jesus' childhood, except for, uh, you know, some things in, when we find out when Jesus is 12, Mary and Joseph happen to lose the Messiah in Jerusalem. <laughs> they find him at the seat of all the teachers, and, and it was a stinging rebuke by Jesus when they said, hey, your, your mother and your, fa- your father and I are, were worried sick about you. And Jesus replies, man, you should know that I'm about my father's business. So right there, there's a distinction in the relationship between Jesus and his mother and his father. I am under my father's ultimate authority. And this only gets developed further, and I want to show you this. The Apocrypha, by the way, which which is a bunch of writings that are intertestamental between the Old Testament and the New Testament period, they'll be in the Catholic Bible. But um, the Apocrypha tells stories of Jesus healing little birds and things like that. But John tells us in verse 11, if you just skip down to verse 11 in your Bibles, he says this is the first of many signs. This is the first. So disregard all the Apocrypha. It seems that Joseph is most likely dead at this point, and so Mary would have relied upon Jesus as the firstborn male. And so Mary, knowing who Jesus was from birth, having divine intervention from angels, knowing all these things, she goes to Jesus to fix it. Wise woman. And at first glance, Jesus' response to his mother, doesn't it seem a little rude? Mother, you know, woman. He doesn't say mother, he says woman. What does this have to do with me? Now, Jesus is not being disrespectful, but he's not being affectionate either, is he? In John 19, 26 through 27, as Jesus is dying on the cross, Jesus uses this same term. And it says there, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John the Apostle, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. It seems that when Jesus started his earthly ministry, that his relationship with his mother and her authority over his life came to an end. It says in Luke 8, 20 through 21, as he was it says, he was, as he was told, Jesus is teaching in a house. He says, your mothers and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the words of God and do it. Isn't that cutting? I'm like, Jesus, what are you, you know, this is your mother and your brother. Show respect. It tells you there's a higher authority, a higher, something uh, that is, that separated Jesus. When, when he started his ministry, it was his father's will that must be done. That doesn't mean he didn't love and respect his mother, but he wasn't an ordinary boy. He was the son of God. It seems that this happened. And so the term mother is now woman that Jesus uses, a respectful term. And Jesus was a man, but he was God, and he submitted to the will of the father, which sometimes contradicted the will of the mother. And you'll find that as you get older, by the way. You can still honor your mother and father, but ultimately, you obey the Lord. Amen? So Jesus says, woman, the equivalent of ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Mary's asking Jesus to do something supernatural. Reveal who you are. You are super awesome. I know you are. There was never a problem with you as a child. It was always these other little kids that God gave me. You know? (laughs) Could you imagine being... Jesus and these other brothers, oh, it's bad. It's kind of like Joseph and uh, his brothers, right? That's what that, it's a foreshadowing, right? 
Jesus says the same thing. Uh, interestingly enough, he's, he, basically, it, he says, Mary's asking Jesus to do something. He says, man, my hour hasn't come yet. Now, what does that mean? Bear with me for a second. Jesus says the same thing in, in John 7, 3 through 7. Interesting enough, Jesus' brothers are talking to Jesus then. Mary's sons, through Joseph, said to Jesus, starting in verses 3 through 7 of John 7, he says, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. You need to get a PR campaign going on here. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. That was their motivation. Show yourself to the world. Use your power to reveal who you are. Fall off the temple and angels will grab you. Turn this stuff into stone. Meet your needs. Do these things. And what is verse, reveal who you are, Jesus, but verse five says, for not even his brothers believed in him. It's very important. They wanted signs. Signs does not equal faith. Very important. Signs does not equal faith. Jesus said to him, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not coming up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. He keeps saying, my time hasn't come yet. My time hasn't come yet. So Jesus is reiterating, doing signs and wonders for those who want to be dazzled. I'm not going to do it. I find it interesting. Jesus resisted doing in signs and wonders for the sake of doing signs and wonders. It was all about his father's will. In Matthew 16, he runs into the Pharisees and the Sadducees who said, hey, give us a sign from heaven. On what authority are you doing all these things? Give us a sign from heaven. Not your ordinary casting out demons, not healing people, not raising the dead. I want a sign from heaven. I want uh, uh, something to part in, like, it's got to be bigger. That's what the Pharisees were basically saying. We want an Old Testament call down fire sign. And Jesus says, you can't even interpret the signs of the seasons of what's going on around you right now, you think you're going to interpret that? And Jesus says in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. What does that mean? And we're going to unpack this. Jesus would not give them a sign except for the sign of Jonah. We know Jonah spent three nights in the belly of a whale. And then he was spit up on shore to go and then minister and save a whole people. The picture of Jonah is Jesus would die and three days later he would rise again. That is the sign that he's giving people. The resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In John 17, the night Jesus was betrayed, Jesus said in, one, in verses one through five, notice I'm quoting through John here. He says, Father, Guess what? The hour has come. He's in the upper room. Judas has left. He's, he's being betrayed at the moment. They're going to come get him in a couple hours. And Jesus is praying. He says, the hour has come. It's not how you run a PR campaign. It's not lights and dazzle. He was taken away in the middle of the night when no one saw it. He was tried. He was silent. He was let out, whipped, beat, bruised, crucified, dead, buried. He said, the hour has come. That's why I came. 
this is the sign, my death. He knew it the whole time. He was going to the cross and he was going to be raised to glory. The hour of humiliation and glorification, that's the Father's will, not man's. Jesus said, my hour's not come yet. I can't do what you're asking, Mary. The way you want me to do it, it's not in God's plan. This isn't the time and the way for that reason. And I love Mary's response, like a good Jewish mother. Verse 5, his mother said to servants, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) He's going to do it. Now, she knew from what he was saying is, I can't do it in that way, but I'm going to go ahead and and do this. It is the Father's will to do it. There was some kind of dialogue going on there. Got to love that. And so now verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars and there were, Uh, therefore the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And so they'd have these giant water jars full of water and people would get not to wash their hands. This is for purification. Their hands are already clean. They would dip their hands in. They'd raise them up. The water would come off the sides and it was just a sign of, of, of spiritual cleansing is what it is. It's a sign of being spiritually clean to engage with fellowship with other believers and all these types of things, other covenant believers back then, Right? And so they were empty. And Jesus said to the servants, these, these water jars, fill, the, fill them up with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And so some, that's between 120 and 180 gallons of water. That's how much water was going on there. Verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, Notice Jesus did it in that way. To now not everybody would know, but those specific people. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And so the master of the feast of the wedding is basically the coordinator, the wedding coordinator. He's just dumbfounded. What's going on was not the norm at a wedding. You know, you put out the best wine first while everybody's paying attention, and then you bring out the two-buck chuck, right? That's kind of what's going on. But the latter wine is better than the first, he says. And so now I have to say real quickly that some Christians take this verse as a means to justify getting drunk. Jesus' first miracle is, well, I'm a pastor. I've heard this over and over again. Um, You know, the justification that we have, I guess, is... Is, is, you know, Jesus' first miracle is turning water into wine. So obviously they drank wine in those days. It's, it's fine to drink wine. And then it goes on, and they'll say like, hey, you know, God created weed, so obviously he's endorsing smoking it. This verse is not teaching you about being okay to drink and get drunk. This is, this, the creation story is not about, hey, God created weed, smoke it. That's not what he's saying, right? I hope you guys know that, right? <laughs> the passage here is not teaching on those things. The purpose is in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his, who? Disciples did what? Believed in him. What's the process that John's been going through? Individuals 
And now he's got the whole band together and they believe in him. Jesus is not doing this so that we understand that he can change water into wine and then a wedding and all this type of stuff. He's just saying he did the miracle and his disciples saw what happened and they believe. They're going to be the ones who testify. That's the context of the miracle. God's manifesting his glory to his disciples. To his disciples, to those who believe and would believe. And by the way, water in those days was contaminated, right? And so what do you use to contaminate, I mean, to, to purify water? Alcohol. And so the ratio was very minute from what historians say. It was 1 to 10 or 3 to 10 or whatever it was. I can't remember the exact ratio, but it was very minute. To, so it would be enough to kill it and give flavor to the water, but without uh, getting drunk. But our wine today would be considered strong drink. So it's, um, it's important to know that the Bible does not teach us to be overcome by any substance. Now you're going, hey, you can't drink wine. Of course you can drink, drink wine. You're not under the law. Do not be drunk. Do not be drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I know from smoking a whole lot of pot for two years without being sober, confession, you can't smoke a little pot and not be high. Sorry pastor knows this. <laughs> I regret it all. You know what I mean? Our hearts are evil. They'll use whatever it wants to justify whatever actions we want to have. And I've struggled, you know, in my heart to justify things. And so just, just know this is not what it's teaching about. Don't use the Bible to justify sin keep in step with the Spirit. It's interesting. It says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Use that as a principle. Don't let anything overtake you to where Holy Spirit's not blowing the life. In, uh, blowing the life. That's great, Matt. I'm sorry. I, I have a picture in my mind. What it, what it actually is, is there's a boat. And that word, uh, do not be filled, uh, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, which leads to destructions. Picture a ship that's being blown, blown along by wine, it leads to the rocks and it destroys your life. And the idea is, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. The sails of your life are filled with the Holy Spirit. He's leading you, he's guiding you, he's directing you in your day-to-day -day affairs. And when you're high, when you're drunk, when you do all that stuff, you do stupid stuff. You make dumb decisions. You buy way too much food. You know what I'm just dumb stuff, right? Thinking back. So, what I'm, what I'm saying is that it's interesting. That's Ephesians, I think, Ephesians 5. But if you go to Colossians, Colossians says, uh, if, if, I'm sorry, going back, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm doing this from memory. Ephesians 5 says, basically, he says, do not be drunk, drunk with wine, but filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see, the fruit of the Spirit is edification of others. That's what's going to happen in your life. As God is blowing the wind of your sails of your life, you're going you're gonna to be a blessing to those around you. You're going to be praising God. That's what's going to be, your, what's what's gonna be your, your life is like. Amen? Well, what is being filled with the Spirit like? When you go over to Colossians, it says the same thing, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But what is the driver behind that? It says, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so what is being filled with the Holy Spirit? Is this some mystical thing where you do something weird? It's having what he says 
fill your heart and you just lovingly obey him day after day, you find that he is leading and guiding you and empowering you to do what he's actually said to do. Amen? So be filled with the spirit, not with wine. Is it okay to drink wine? Of course. Pot? No. <laughs> just, you know. We can talk about that stuff later. Well, what about medicinal? This is not the time to talk about that. The water. And so real quickly, the significance that I see in all this. This is the first of Jesus' signs. And there is a significance here. And something a little deeper. So take this with a grain of salt. But I think it's, I think it's, it's fitting. It's the, the, the teaching is that the disciples believe, but the significant, there's significance in the water being turned to wine. The significance that I see is that the water in the purification jars was turned to wine. And the water of the Old Testament ceremony was symbolic of cleansing. The water of the Old Testament symbolic was cleansing. They all got together, they all dipped their hands in it, it was symbolic that God had cleansed them, Correct? But that was just looking forward to the true cleansing that God would do. The true and ultimate cleansing. The water did nothing. Amen? It was a symbol of the old covenant, just as the wine is a symbol of a new covenant. The grape juice does nothing. It's looking towards something. It's pointing towards something. It's a symbology. The water was a symbol of the old covenant just as the wine is the new covenant and the latter is better. The latter is better. Amen? Jesus said in the upper room the night he was going to be betrayed and then crucified the following morning, Jesus said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant of my blood which is poured out for you. And he had a cup of wine. He's saying, this is a symbol of the blood that I'm about to shed for you, and it's poured out for you. Hebrews 9.22 speaks of the significance of, of, the, of blood in God's covenants. It says in 9.22 of Hebrews, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's brutal. Would you not agree? Isn't that horrific? That if you have sinned, there is no taking away your sin according to God without blood being shed on that behalf, either yours or something else's that has to be innocent. A few verses before that in Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, it says of Christ, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with his hands, that is of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place. He, entered, he himself entered in to the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, those things that looked forward, but by his own blood his own blood, thus securing an internal redemption. See, the water doesn't cut it. The grape juice doesn't cut it. It points, the, the bulls and the calves, they don't cut it. They point 
to the true sacrifice that actually takes away our sin. Jesus. And this real Jesus who did these miracles bled out on a cross for you, for me. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer, if they sanctify for the purification of the flesh. In other words, the outward Old Testament symbology, it all was an outward thing. If those things cleanse the outside, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, our very being, from dead works to serve a living God? See, religion is an outward thing. But Jesus Christ gets to the core of a human being and he cleanses them from the inside out. And the only way anyone is, can be cleansed is through faith in actually who he is and that we believe that he is the son of God that came down and died as the lamb of God in my place, in our place. And through faith in him and that he rose again, my sins are atoned for, they're gone, and his life is now imparted to me and just as he lives, I live. That's how a person is born again. Faith in Christ. Purified from a dead conscience. Uh, our conscience from a, purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Old Testament covenant was a fleshly covenant. Cleaning the hands with the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience. The water and the wine point to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The sign. And that's why I believe the Lord said, let's go ahead and do this. <laughs> Ultimately, it's looking forward to me and what I will do. So as we end our service, as, as uh, we close, I'd like to, we'd like to close in communion, a time when believers gather together and we focus on the sacrifice that the Lord has made on our behalf. And let me say that if you are not a believer, this is not for you. But let me say that the invitation is open between you and the Lord Jesus Christ to be forgiven, to receive his salvation, to be changed, to be given his everlasting life. Put your faith in him and you are welcome to come to the table. Let's remember that miracle that he brought in our midst, changing our hearts from just a cleansing to sons and daughters of the living God. Amen. Thank you for purifying us, Lord God. Thank you for manifesting your glory among us. And Lord, as you have done these signs, I pray that anyone here who has not believed would believe you now. That you truly did live. You did do these miracles. You were who you said you were. And you are who you say you are. And so, Lord, as we gather in your name, as we close this service, pray there be a sweet time of fellowship between us and you. As we remember your sacrifice and the life that you've given us now in Jesus. Thank you so much. In your name, amen.